Uh, if you are new and this is your first Sunday, welcome. I am one of many Travises here at the church, uh, often referred to as we do the other Travis, not to be confused with the handsome Travis down here with the beard, looking very, very sharp as usual, Mr. Dixon. Um, but I, I get to teach on occasion as part of the uh, pastoral team around here. Our lead pastor, Mark Gaskew, is at the Citadel this weekend with his son, Grayson, getting ready to start year number two, and so they're down there uh, getting him squared away again. And I do want to say this because um, I, I just appreciate Mark so much, and this is not about worshiping the pastor or elevating him and making hope about him. Uh, Mark is uh, a humble guy, and, and he knows I can say it's not about you, and, and he'll take that the right way. It's not about him, but very, just very blessed and thankful to have him as our pastor and sit under him. And you don't have, you don't have to applaud. He's not here. He's not here. So, but I, I do want you to know that that it is. I, I sent him a text this morning and said I just entered your secret lair. I get to sit in his office on Sundays and and pray and get ready for the service. And uh, just so blessed, so blessed to have him. Uh, as our pastor here, he is uh, truly a, a dear friend as well as my pastor, and, and I'm appreciative of that. So if you don't like this week, come back. There'll be someone else uh, that you probably won't like next week either because we preach about the same stuff. So heads up on that detail. Um, we're kind of in between series two, and I want to let you know that if you're like, where are we going this morning? We just finished a series. If you missed it this summer, uh, I would encourage you, you missed some of it, go back and watch it. We did a series on the armor of God called The Fight. Uh, the entire pastoral team kind of shared responsibilities this summer, and man, it was powerful. It was, for me, it ministered to me, it taught me so much, it challenged me so much. I would encourage you to go back and read through that. We're going to be starting a new series this fall, and uh, boy, I'm excited about that. We spent time this week as, as pastors and with Ryan, our creative arts director, and just kind of processing and talking through what that series could mean for the church and how do we present these truths, and boy, I'm excited about that too. So this Sunday is an open Sunday, which is dangerous for you and me. Uh, but I promise I'm, I'm going to do my best not to go long this week. But uh, I really I want to talk to you about a, a very heavy, weighty, doctrinally uh, sound uh, topic this morning. So it's going to get thick in here, and I want you to know that in advance. But I have to say this up front. Uh, I have a tendency sometimes to get in my own way with, with words, uh, and God does that to keep me humble, I think. That's part of one of my thorns that I, that I carry around. You, some of you don't even know this story, but like about a year or so ago, I was, I was up here preaching. I gave this illustration about runners being in the road, and it turns out Watson was one of the runners in the road. And so I had some nice humble pie, and he's very gracious and didn't call me out about it or anything, but just so good. Uh, about two weeks ago, I take all of my children with me to Walmart to buy dinner. It's on a Saturday. Mama is sleeping and catching up from working third shift. So I got all the kids. We're going through Walmart, and uh, we're rushing to get over and get everything. When you got a lot of kids and you're on your own, especially as a dad, you're like, ah, trying to corral cats, right? And uh, so we're walking through, and I look down one of the self-checkout aisles, and there's Kyle and Hannah. Where's Kyle? Are you in? There's Kyle. Say hi, Kyle. That's Kyle. If you don't know who Kyle is, he's, he's one of our tech guys. They were on the announcements this morning. I see Kyle and Hannah, Hannah's in, in the checkout thing. And uh, I stopped with all the kids. You know, we're all holding hands and everything. I stopped and I looked down there. I said, hey. And Kyle looked up at me from the side and looked back down. I was like, well, I guess they just let anybody in Walmart nowadays. Well, it turns out it wasn't Kyle or Hannah. It was a complete stranger. <laughs> a complete stranger. How great was that, Kyle? 
So you do have a doppelganger in Anderson, but I, I'm like, man, could you say something worse? Like, they let anybody in Walmart nowadays, right? And uh, I'm like, come on, kids. They're like, what? Why aren't you talking to your friend, Dad? Because he's not Dad's friend, and he could hurt us. So I have a tendency to misspeak, and I pray, I really, as sincerely as I can say this, my prayer coming into this morning even is, God, teach people these truths in spite of me. Because what I want to talk to you about this morning out of Romans chapter 3, I believe is the most important passage of Scripture in all the Bible. It trumps John 3.16, which everybody probably knows. It trumps Revelation. This is the most, I believe, the most important piece of Scripture in all of the Bible. Romans chapter 3. And there's heavy doctrine. Some of you are going to hear words for the first time this morning. Some of you are going to get these words explained to you for the first time this morning. In fact, at the end of the sermon last week, Mark, not even knowing what I was preaching on this week, started talking about it. And I'm like, dude, like, stop. You're stepping on me a little bit. So um, I'm excited to be in this text because I believe if through my inadequacies, the Holy Spirit can reveal the power of chapter 3 to you, that he can be the one to teach you what this chapter means, it will radically, radically transform your life. If you can truly capture this and own it, it will change your life dramatically. So I want to talk to you, and if you have a Bible, this is one morning I would encourage you, underline, take notes, right? Not, not because of what I'm saying, capture what Scripture says. So I would encourage you to follow along if you have one, Romans chapter 3. Now, I've titled this morning's message, No Ordinary Love. No ordinary love. Love is a funny word, isn't it? I mean, our culture, American culture, we, we use love in ways that is just, it's crazy, right? And at different stages of our lives, this word love carries on different weight and different connotation, and, and we use it and just can kind of flippantly throw it around. Uh, I've mentioned before, I have a passion, I have a love for candy, now, I'm not disciplined in that area like I should, but I've gotten much better recently. But uh, I, I love candy. But if I say to you, I love candy, and at the same time I say, I love my wife, there should be some discrepancy there, hopefully, right? I remember as a little kid, maybe some of you had these experiences, I would go to the grocery store with my mom and, and do the groceries. You know, it'd be my week to go with her. We all had chores and routines and stuff. And I would go with her, and I remember being in a checkout line, and of course, they, they arrange that beautiful display for our children as you're checking out, which is wonderful, because then you get asked 20 million times in five minutes, can I have that, can I have that, can I have that? No, stop, put it down, Psh, ah, ah, right? And, uh, but I remember going through that line as a child thinking, when I become an adult, I'm going to buy a box every week of watermelon flavor Bubblicious, and I'm going to have it whenever I want, because I love Candy. I remember thinking through that and processing that. I love sports. I love basketball. I love football. I love baseball. Uh, I love golf. There's, there's not many. I love soccer. There's not many sports I, I don't enjoy. There's, there's a few out there, but I love sports. And so you might hear me say, I love sports. What does that even mean, I love sports? Would I die for sports? No. Would I give up a date with my beautiful wife to go watch sports with you? Mm, probably not going to happen. Um, Do I love sports enough that I'm going to sacrifice everything I can to make my child a professional? No. And if you do, I hope God convicts you this morning. Uh, I love sports. I enjoy sports. Sports are fun. 
But at what measure of love is that love? I love my family. Ooh, that's a deeper kind of love. There's, that's a deeper kind of love. I will hurt you for my family. I'm not a big guy, but I will do what I have to do for my family. Hey, good news. My daughter Lizzie graduates this week from Navy boot camp, right? Awesome. I get to, uh, me and my wife, my mom, dad here, we're all, we're going to drive down to Chicago this week and watch that. I, I can't even tell you. She wrote us a letter yesterday. I'm crying in the van reading it. Still two months in a boot camp and I'm emotional over this girl. Uh, I will kill you for my daughter. I've told you that before. Nothing is better, dads, than when your daughter sends you that letter after leaving home saying, Dad, you were so right about those boys in high school. Woo! That is reason to raise your hands and worship this morning. It just, it moved my soul. But let me tell you, I would do a lot for that girl, as I would all my children, because I love them. They matter to me. I love coffee. A little nitro brew, if you haven't had it yet, and you cash in your 401k, get you some. It is worth the expense. I love coffee. I love to, to work out. I love talking to people. I love history, which kind of makes me a little bit of a nerd, but I'm okay with that. I love history. Documentaries. My goodness, I can watch me some documentaries. And when there's a new one on Netflix, it's like, it's the only benefit I have of my wife working nights and weekends because she hates them. So I get the kids in bed and I'm like, click, yes. Right? I love those kind. I love those. I love Jesus. See how we use that word? At what point is there a difference? So when I'm thinking about this topic this morning, and I've titled this message, No Ordinary Love, I want to drive this point home to you. The love that God has for you, not how you love Jesus, the love that God has for you is beyond ordinary. I mean, I'm not even going to do justice to try to describe to you how great his love is this morning. But I want you, if nothing else, to understand something. God loves you in extraordinary, extraordinary measures and ways. And here's the kicker. It has nothing to do with you. Let that just sink in for a moment. Okay? Let that just settle in. So... I'm going to tell you where we're going. I don't have any ahas. There's no like, whoa, look at this illustration. Something comes from behind. I don't have any of that this morning. Uh, I'm not going to try and like sneak one in on you in the middle and you'd be like, oh, I didn't even see that point coming. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I got three simple points, okay? Uh, I'm going to beat you up on the first point, okay? I'm going to hit you hard. You're probably not going to like it. You might get offended and that's okay with me. Uh, because I don't take it personally. It's, it's truth and it's the gospel. So I'm going to beat you up, and then I'm going to love on you. That's good. We like that, right? And then I'm going to challenge you. Okay? And we're, and we're looking at three things. We're looking at our condition. We're looking at the cure to our condition. And we're looking at the calling as a result of that cure. All right? So it's really simple to follow. Again, I don't want to surprise you. I want you to understand what's coming. Uh, but I want to give it to you straight. Because it's life-changing, I believe that. So I want to start out with this point, number one, the condition. So in case you haven't realized this yet and spending any time with me or anybody else and you're, you're just you know, a recluse and you don't talk to anybody, I'm just going to throw this out for you. I am a depraved, wicked, horrible, individual human being. And so are you. All right? There is nothing in and of yourself that is good. You are repulsive. 
You are disgusting, wicked, horrible, vile, wretched, putrid, filthy. Are you feeling the love yet in the room? There, there is nothing about you and there is nothing about me that is of value, that is of worth, that you could look at and say, wow, that is a redeemable quality about that individual. I am absolutely 100% a depraved sinner who sins. And sometimes more frequently than I wish, there are times I find myself committing sins and I'm thinking, what am I doing? I'm supposed to be a child of God. I'm supposed to be a son. And before I knew Jesus, whoo, I could, I could argue with Paul all day long about who the chiefest of sinners was. Why? Because that was my core DNA. That's who I am at my base nature. That's how I came into this world. As I've told you many times past preaching, no one had to teach me how to sin. It came naturally to me, and I was really good at it. And guess what? So are you. There's no aspect about you, about me, about my children, about your children, about sweet little old grandma or sweet little Susie Q running around the kid. There's no aspect about any of us that is redeemable apart from Jesus Christ. So I want to get into the text first. Romans chapter 3. We're going to start in verse number 9. In the context here of what Paul's talking about, Paul's essentially establishing what I just said to you through this chapter. Paul is saying, look, everyone is a sinner. Everyone is depraved. Everyone starts out totally depraved and wicked and apart from God. He says in verse number 9, so what then? He lays that argument out and says, so what then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, or Greeks, in other words, everybody, we are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. It's almost like Paul says, you're not getting this, so he gets real redundant here. None's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. In case you miss it, he ends by saying, no, not even one. It's almost like Paul's telling this, I know it's a letter he wrote, but like he's telling this to a group of people and they're like, yeah, but but, but no, nobody. Yeah, but there, no, there is nothing about you or me. You are a sinner. And this is part of our struggle as both the church and as people that are not in relationship with Christ, we don't see our sin and ourselves the same way that God does. And as such, that lessens Him as a Savior. It strips away the beauty of His grace and the work of Christ on the cross. Because let's be honest, a lot of us like to think, I'm not so bad. We're really good at comparison, aren't we? We are great at it. And when we come back to Scripture, when we come back to truth and we put our our feelings aside and what we think and what seems right in our mind and we just come back and we say, God, teach me truth. When we come back to Scripture, what we see is God lays it out black and white, clear as day, none, zilch, nada, no one is good. You jump down to verse 23. He says it again in this way. All, one of the first verses my parents drilled into me. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. God has this glorious holiness, this righteousness, this perfection about his character. This ultimate standard that is set so high 
because it is absolutely free of any kind of blemish of sin, of pride, of gluttony, of addiction, of anger, of lust, of hatred. It is so far high, this glorious standard. And Paul says, we all sin and we all fall short of that standard. We don't measure up. And so when you look at Scripture, and unless you think this is just one passage, I wrote down some others here for you, of how God's attitude towards sin is described. He uses very strong feelings and language in Scripture. I'm just going to give you a few of them. He, he refers to sin as something of disgust, of just having an utter hatred and hostility towards it. He says in Psalm 38.4 that it's described as putrefying sores. That sounds appealing. Man, I love getting in and just smelling up and loving up a putrefying sore. No, we do it. Ah, I want nothing to do with that. That's disgusting. Titus 1.15, he describes it as defiling filth. Matthew 6, it is a, a binding debt. 1 John 1, 1.6, it is a darkness. Isaiah 1.18, it is a, a blood scarlet stain. We have this struggle where we look at sin and we like to justify and make it like, mm, it's not that okay. Let me tell you something, plain as day, God hates sin. You, well, I know that. Do you know it? Because that's what you are and that's what your DNA is. So if you understand that God hates sin, you have to also understand you start off in life from a position of God's hatred towards your very core and DNA of who you are. But I thought God was love. God is a God of love, but he is also a God of wrath and judgment. And his holiness, his glorious standard demands that he hates sin because it is the exact opposite of his character and who he is. And God knows that when we embrace sin, when we live a life of sin, when we chase after sin, even when we slip up and, and we fall into sin, he knows that when we do that, it takes away our love from him and places it on the anti-version of what Christ is all about. First John 2, this isn't on the screen, but I'm just going to read to you 2, 15 through 16. He says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of a sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but of the world. I mean, it's so plain in Scripture. You can't lust and crave and sin and chase these things and still say, but I love God. It is absolutely impossible. James also warns us of this danger. In 4.4, James says, you adulterous people, don't you know, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Not just it creates a little separation. If you are friends with the world and the sin and the things that this world has to offer you, you might as well look God in the face and say, I hate you. You say, oh, I would never say that to God. I, I would never. Understand, your actions cry that out if we live a life of sin. If we don't understand God's perspective on what sin is, we will tolerate it, we will accept it, we will flirt with it, we will date it, we will love it, we will have an affair with it. We will be all about sin until we learn to look at it the way God looks at it and say, no, it is putrid, it is disgusting, I want nothing to do that. And therefore, when I do sin as a follower of God, therefore, when I do make a mistake, 
Thank God for grace. How do I get that out of my life immediately so I can come back to this glorious presence of my King? Amen. That's good preaching. I got one that's right. I'll take it. When we look at our sin and our character the way that God does, it will absolutely change our flirtatious approach to sin. I honestly believe that. God, in other places in Scripture, He will call it an abomination. That's a big fancy word, abomination. We don't use that too much in our culture anymore, so it doesn't really carry a lot of meaning, a lot of depth for us, but abomination literally means something that is repugnant, repulsive, nauseating, turns the stomach, sickening, literally makes you want to vomit. Think of the weight of that as our DNA when God looks down upon us. Do you understand what our condition is? I don't start out life being somewhat of a good kid, a good guy, and I have things to offer, and I just need a little savior in my life to complete the package. I start out as something God wants nothing to do with, as something that God cannot have fellowship with, that God wants just no interaction with until there is a change, a difference in my life, because I start out as the exact opposite of everything he is about. I start out completely and absolutely, 100%, totally depraved as an individual. Gives you a new way to look at your children, doesn't it? (laughs) I can say that. I have a lot of them. I love them. I love them dearly, and I believe God's grace covers them until the age of accountability when they can actually give an account for their their responsible actions and, and, and the choices that they make in life. But man, you don't have to spend five minutes in my home to see that they're depraved. Now, my grandparents would disagree with that because they love them and they're supposed to, oh, they're sweet as anything until they take, you know, a hammer to each other's hand when your back's turned and you're like, oh, they're sweet now. You know, it's, it's like, it's just amazing. It is amazing our, our base depravity at how it will just fester and grow and grow and grow. I, I, I do social work full-time for a living. Y'all know that. My wife works in the ER here in Edman, Enmed. Uh, we, we see brokenness on a regular basis. And guess what? We're not unique in that. So do you. So do you. You, you see it in, in the brokenness of, of the faces and the lives of people going into to Walmart to get their groceries. You see it at the local Goodwill. You see it uh, and people just out strolling the streets trying to, to just survive one more night. You see it if you go into some of the neighborhoods surrounding the communities here in town. You will see brokenness and depravity of man is all around us. It, it does not surprise me, and, and maybe because of my own fallings in life, but it doesn't surprise me when I hear of politicians falling and I hear of movie stars having affairs and getting divorced and all this. Why? Because it is the core value of, of humanity. Sin. Everything stems from that. And there's nothing I can do to bridge that gap. Nothing. It doesn't matter how many church services I go to, how many ministries I'm involved in, how much I serve. It doesn't matter how much of this precious book I memorize. It doesn't matter if I raise my hand in worship. It doesn't matter if I read this every day. It doesn't matter what I do. Nothing can bridge that gap of my sin and God's perfect standard of holiness. Nothing I can do justifies that until i see my sin that way i will make excuses i will resist surrender i will uh entertain things i probably shouldn't entertain and i will flirt with darkness that's my condition that's your condition i love you that's why i'm telling you this if i didn't love you 
I would just be like, you're good. Don't even worry about it. But because I love you, I want you to know your condition is horrible. Who would want to go to a doctor sick, getting ready to die, and have the doctor say, you're all right, don't worry about it, just go home and take a multivitamin? You'd want that doctor to be honest with you, right, and say, look, you got some issues, and there's only one cure. Oh, this is the good part. You ready for the love? Come on now. I know it's early, but you've got to, like, come on. If I'm you, I want some love right now, because this is beating me up. Re- reading this and studying this, I'm like, God, how... How do I even get up and open your word and talk to your church? Who am I that I should talk about you and your grace? I am am wicked. I've got no business on that platform. And he'll say, absolutely. That's right. Amen. That's right. So the cure. The cure is propitiation. Yes! Yes! All right, everybody on the count of three, we're going to say it together. You ready? One, two, three, propitiation. Come on, it's a new word for a lot of you. I know, let's say it again. One, two, three, propitiation. How many of you have spent time in the last month on your knees saying, thank you, Father, for propitiation? We're going to talk about it this morning. It is the greatest, the greatest thing God talks about in Scripture. Why? Because the cure is found through propitiation. It is the importance of the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. I almost had the the creative team just bring out the cross that we use at Easter and just set it up on the stage because it it matters so much. The cross. Romans 6.23 tells us, because of our condition, the wages of sin is death. But... That's so good. You should circle that about 82 times in your Bible. But why? Because the cost of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Propitiation. It it reminds me a little bit of Will Ferrell in the movie Elf. uh, When he says San Francisco. (laughs) San Francisco, that's fun to say. Right? Propitiation. It's fun to say. It's even funner to learn the depth and the beauty of what this means. Let me read you this passage of Scripture where Paul talks about it, and we're just going to break it down real quick. Romans 3, 22. We're going to pick it up at the end of verse 22, beginning all the way down to 27. Paul says this, For there is no distinction. For all have sinned, we've read this, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now catch this in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting, Paul says? It is excluded. So I want to break this down for you a little bit. Let's, if, if Verse 24, if you could put that back on the screen. Let's look at this. So Paul starts with our condition. We all fall short in 23, right? We're all short of that standard. We're all sinners. And then he enters in hope. He says, 
and are justified. Justification is another great doctrinal word. If you've never studied it out, you should. But justified literally means to declare something to be righteous, to be innocent of all charges against them. It's essentially what a judge does when he says, you are not guilty, go free. So Paul says what Christ does is that he justifies us, he declares us to be righteous. How does he do that? Paul answers it. He says, by his grace. What is grace? Grace is the unconditional, unearned, unmerited, overwhelming love of the Father, having nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. Grace is something you can never earn. I used to think that grace was just another way of saying, I love you. Grace is beyond just God saying, I love you. If I could illustrate it, it would be like this. For my perspective, grace would be like water in this bottle, right? And, and this bottle is full of grace. And there are times in my life I need grace. So, you know, we might take a little bit of drink, get some grace in our life. And sometimes we know we're really, really falling short of God's standard and we'll drink all of the grace in, right? And we're like, man, God's grace is so rich and so good. I just, I just took like a bottle of it, man. It was, it was awesome. I just filled myself up. Let me give you a better illustration to, to explain it. Grace is like Niagara Falls and you're at the bottom trying to take a drink of it. That is how the grace of God is. You can't even begin to contain the grace of God. You can't even begin to accept that level of love that looks at you and says, wow, I see holiness in you. I see perfection. I see a standard of excellence superior to anything. I don't see a blemish. I don't see a blot in you. I don't see anything in you that is repulsive or that turns my stomach or makes me sick. When I see you, I declare you to be righteous. And I do that simply because of my grace. Holy cow, like What kind of love is that? And he goes on to say, as a gift. What? I don't deserve that. You're right. I don't. It's a gift. How is that gift given? It is given through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, how did Christ redeem us? I love how Paul just sets this up. 25. This is how he redeems us. God put him. Whom is Jesus? Whom? Jesus is who God put forward on the cross. That's what that means. He put him forward into creation on the cross as a propitiation. As a propitiation. So I've talked a lot about that word, but what does that mean? You ready? Propitiation simply means this, appeasing the wrath of God. It is subverting the wrath of God that should be squarely placed on your head, your head, your head, your head, my head. The wrath of God that should pour down in just overwhelming abundance upon my life and utterly consume and destroy me. It's as if Christ intercedes through the cross and says, divert that wrath on me, Father. I will take that wrath And I will accept it on me so that you can then justify them to be right. So appease them. Appease your wrath. Satisfy would be even a better, simpler way to understand it. It's as if the wrath of God must fall because he is just. And as such, rather than falling on you, Jesus says, I will take it all. Get the weight of that. Father God, please allow 
the heaviness of that to sink into our hearts that the wrath of Almighty God that can consume you instantly and destroy you fell squarely on the back of His Son hanging on a cross. Isaiah would say it in such a way. Isaiah says, it gave God tremendous pleasure to crush His Son, to pour His wrath out on His Son for you and for me so that we didn't have to accept the wrath of God. Wow. Wow. Do you realize the measure, the depth of love that God has for you, that He would find pleasure in pouring His very wrath out on His Son? Scripture teaches us that Jesus didn't just die for our sin, that He became our sins, and not just my sin and your sin, but the sin of every human being that has ever existed or ever will exist. He became it all. No wonder he looked at his father and said, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? No wonder darkness fell and descended upon the earth. We, we just can't even, we think we understand power. We have no concept of power. I just did a wedding this past week at Pretty Place. If you're not familiar with Pretty Place, it's it's a pretty place uh, up in Greenville County, and it overlooks like this massive valley. It's way high up there. You, you got to drive on the snake-like road for, I don't know, like 12 miles or something to get up there. My wife and I were like, pull over, because we're old. But anyway, we got up there, and we performed this wedding, right? And as we're performing the wedding, my back's to the valley, and, and that's all good. And all of a sudden, the, the storm front just starts moving in. And it sounded like the applause of heaven while I'm doing the ceremony because the rain started really soft. And I kind of made it. I'm like, oh, listen to that. It's kind of like the applause of heaven over your ceremony. God is present with us. It's a very small ceremony and everything. So I'm leading the groom through his vows. And, you know, you know how weddings work, hopefully. And uh, I'm, I'm talking to you and repeat after me. And we go through all this. And this is not at all, you know, Baptist preaching exaggeration. This is 100% God honest truth. My wife videotaped it. As soon as I said to the groom, uh, I do. And as soon as he said, I do, the loudest thunderclap I have ever heard boomed right through that valley. I, I thought it was literally right behind me on the cliff. It was so loud. It scared the bejeebies out of all of us there, right? I was like, dude, God just witnessed you saying I do. So I think he wants you to take it pretty serious. So pay attention to that. It was just amazing at how powerful that was. Like, it shook me to my core. I I might have wet myself a little bit. It's okay to say that in church. We're all humans. Everybody does that, okay? Like, it it literally scared me. It literally, I was like, whoa. Like, yeah, it got my attention. We sang, you probably didn't even notice it. We sang several, several lines this morning about the thunder roaring the sound of God. Revelation tells us that thunder roars from the throne room of heaven. We, we have no grasp the concept of the power of God. Thunder is nothing to him. Thunder is like me snapping my fingers. I mean, it's nothing to him. He's all-powerful. Can you imagine the wrath, the anger towards sin that Almighty Father God has? And he poured that out on his son. 1 John 4.10, listen to this verse. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son 
to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, do you see the beauty in that? This is love. Not that I loved him, that while I was this repulsive, disgusting, sin-filled creature, he loved me so much he sent Jesus to be in a propitiation for my sins. God gave God. God gave God for you and for me. I wouldn't give my son for you. I wouldn't. I love a lot of you, but I wouldn't. God gave God. It was his solution. It wasn't ours. Only a righteous, righteous, spotless, sin-free offering could atone for my sin and your sin. And only Jesus could satisfy that supreme standard. No human being, no animal, no creature could ever accomplish what divinity did when divinity gave of itself to appease its own wrath against creation what a overwhelming gift hebrews 9 22 tells us without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins jesus had to die he had to shed spotless blood to redeem us i love the hymn we sang it last week nothing but the blood what can wash away my sins nothing but the blood of jesus what can make me whole again if you come back for the second service i might even sing it Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing. In case we get confused, there's so many other. Hebrews 10, 12, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. There was one propitiation and one time only. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. It's what I just said to you. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses since I was a little kid. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life that I now live by the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is what the cross accomplishes. Resurrection is the ultimate expression that Jesus has power over sin and death and is able to appease the wrath of God. When Jesus stepped out of that tomb into the glorious sunlight, as angels were shouting like crazy in the silent background, when he stepped out there, it was declaration that I have successfully appeased the wrath of God. That's why we shout when we sing about resurrection around here. What a glorious, glorious gift. The cross is the cure. So I leave you with this. I got to challenge you. I got to challenge you. Paul in 1 Timothy is addressing a young pastor and he says this to him. I'm just going to read the scripture, point out two things. I'm, I'm not going to explain them long. We're just, we're going to be done. Paul says this, I thank him meaning God, who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I would underline that. A lot of times we'll read passages like this and think, well, that was Paul's call. Paul's call. He was appointed. Paul says, I thank God that he appointed me to his service. Though formally, (laughs) Paul confirms what I said in point one, I was a blasphemer. 
He cursed the name of God. He says, I was a persecutor. He, he killed those that claimed to love God. He was a early church terrorist that would go up shooting and killing congregations. That's who Paul was. He was an insolent opponent of the gospel of Christ. He hated the gospel of Jesus Christ, hated Christ's followers. That's who Paul was. Paul says, but I receive mercy. Mercy is another word translation for propitiation. I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I love 15. I, this is my verse. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. So he's like, plant a flag on this statement right here. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Or another translation you'll read, of whom I am the chiefest of sinners. Paul says, plant your flag here. Christ Jesus came with one goal, one purpose, save sinners, and I'm the greatest one. I'm like, nope, sorry, Paul, take a back seat. I'm driving this bus, right? I am the chiefest of sinners. Paul says, but I receive mercy. In spite of that, God gave him propitiation. Why? For this reason, that in me, as the foremost Christ Jesus, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Paul says essentially this, listen, God gave me propitiation, he gave me mercy for a purpose, and the purpose is this, so that I could be an example to the world that God loves everyone and will save everyone. But we have to fall at the cross. It's through the work of the cross. Paul makes that so clear in Scripture. And I love the language of being appointed to the service of Jesus. So here's your call. Jesus doesn't give you salvation. He doesn't propitiate so that you can sit back and live the American dream. Jesus Christ did not assume the wrath of God so you could go to school and get a degree and get a successful job and retire and die someday. He didn't do that. Jesus didn't say, pour it out on me, Father, so that they can enjoy everything that the world has to offer them entertainment-wise. Pour your wrath on me, Father, so that the people could just get together once a week and be comfortable sitting in a pew. He poured his wrath out on Jesus Christ to appoint you and me that choose to be in relationship with him, that respond to that message, so that we could be appointed to his service. Unless we stretch this and twist this, as a lot of people have done over the years, Paul teaches in other portions, does that mean we just keep sinning so we can say, hey, look how great God's grace is? Paul says, no, God forbid, we don't keep sinning so we get more grace to reflect the greatness of God. That diminishes the grace of God. It cheapens that love. That would be like our children saying, well, dad loves me, so I'm going to live however I want. That cheapens my love for you. So Paul diminishes that argument in Romans and other passages of Scripture, but he says, I have given uh, my life to Christ, and Christ, as a result, has said, I'm going to use you now and appoint you for service. And he finishes with this. So this charge, verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Paul thought of Timothy as his son in the faith. He says, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, in other words, 
by the work that God has done in you that was prophesied over you, you may wage good warfare. Does that sound familiar, Pastor Matthew? The fight. God propitiated so that you would wage war. Not so you would sit and be comfortable. God propitiated so that you would worship Him with hands raised and hearts crushed in awe of what He's done for you. The reason we can just kind of stand bored during worship is we don't stop and contemplate what we deserved and what God did in place of that. So we listen to songs and we sing things that Hannah and the team pick out and we're like, oh, I don't really like that tune this week. It's not about the tune. It's about what God has done for you. And there's a reason There's a reason we are to respond to that. If if this has any value and any meaning of what has been said today, it should stir us. And I'm not trying to motivate you to cheerlead and clap. That's between you and God. If you don't want to give him praise, you can explain it someday. If, If you want to stay on your butt and get numb in the pew, you can explain that someday. I'm simply telling you, he propitiated so that you would get busy making a difference in darkness in this world. That is our call. We must, must, must speak up. We must talk of righteousness, of God's holy, glorious standard. And I'm I'm, going to hit you with this, but I'm sorry. If we refuse to speak up, we might as well deny our faith. Could you imagine Jesus doing what he did? We don't, we don't tell people that. I've given you something that's trustworthy and deserves your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Period. Period. This life is temporal. It's temporal. Look, we love you here at Hope. I hope you come back. This message ain't ever going to change, though. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, because I love them and I know them. Not because I'm perfect, but Mark would say, that's right. (laughs) Why? Because it's not me. I hope it's not me. If you heard me this morning, may God change that. It's Scripture. It's Scripture. If if we get everything else in, in Scripture and we lose sight of the fact that God propitiated on our behalf out of His grace, His overflowing grace, as Paul says, we've missed it all. We've missed it all. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm not really a a fan of having people raise their hands to make decisions for Christ. I mean, if Christ was willing to become my sin and hang naked on a cross, I don't think we should sneak our way into heaven. So if you need Jesus, you can accept Jesus wherever you want. You can sit in your pew. You can come down here. You can talk to somebody beside you. But let me tell you what I think keeps people from surrendering. We don't want to let go of self. I like self. (laughs) I resurrect self every day, and every day I gotta kill self all over again. Self is fun <laughs> for a while. So, how do we surrender? We ask Jesus to defeat us. Have you done that?
I'm not talking about pray to prayer and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for being a sinner. Come in my heart and save me. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. But what you will find is believing what we taught about propitiation, believing that Christ took the wrath of your sin and saying, God, that should be my wrath. And you took that, and I'm so grateful, so thankful. I, I love you, and because you did that, not only do I accept that in faith and believe that, but I surrender my life to you. You are Lord. I'm not, I'm not talking about coming down here and praying about a sin that you're going to go back and commit next week. I'm talking about surrendering and letting him be Lord. There, there's a big difference in believing in Jesus and accepting Jesus as Lord. Do you, do you understand? That's a whole other doctrinal message. Maybe I'll beat you up with next time, but there's a vast difference in that. I fail in that area. Every day I've got to surrender lordship. So don't think if you're going to run out here this week and run into me at, at Starbucks or Walmart that you're going to see me living a lord-surrendered life. There's a good chance you're going to find me getting upset at the person next to me because they're taking too long at self-checkout. Probably not going to fight with my wife. We've been pretty good lately, but we might be due. Who knows? We might have an argument. She might think I'm checking out a girl in East West Connector like she did yesterday. That's all right. God made that right. Don't, don't, come on. Like, y'all never had those conversations. Come on, right? My point, we're, we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. But are we constantly surrendering lordship back to Christ? Maybe you just need to worship him radically this morning. You may not need to pray. You might be in a great relationship with him. You might need to be like, wow, I, I just got to respond to what Christ has said. The band's going to come out and sing. We'll close this in a song. And I pray your response would be what God wants your response to be. That's the best way to put it. Let's pray. Father, that is my prayer. That is my heart's desire. Uh, I, I just, whatever you need to do, whatever you want to do, I know you don't force your love on anybody, but you sure can uh, get our attention when you want to. I pray you do that this morning. If you need to get our attention, get our attention. If we need to surrender our life to you and accept you as our Savior, give someone the courage to do that this morning. Give them the strength to make that decision, to find somebody that they came with or come grab me out of the front, grab Pastor Matt, grab some, a lot of us here be willing to pray with somebody, Father. If we just need to declare who you are and worship you, may we do that authentically and boldly and excitedly, not out of emotion, but out of a recognition of your extraordinary love. Thank you for loving us with that love. I give you this morning in Christ's name. I pray these things. Amen.